folks, this is Ron Longwell, and I'm glad you're here today for another edition of the Jesus Society Podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the kingdom of God. This is episode 21 of the Jesus Society Podcast, uh, recorded here in the uh, once again spacious Jesus Society studios. Uh, I think I um, I think I mentioned we were uh, in a in a room remodeling uh, project uh, a few weeks ago. It lasted for a month, and uh, my uh, my little area in here had uh, been invaded by furniture from the other room. But uh, we've got all that done. And things look nice, and I've once again um, reclaimed my space here. Um, I did. I made a mistake last week in the podcast. Uh, last week, I, I identified um, the episode as episode nineteen. It was actually episode twenty last week. Um, so it shows up as episode twenty on the uh, in the you know when you in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, it'll still say episode twenty. But in in my speaking, when I was talking, I, I, I inadvertently called it episode 19. Uh, sometimes I can't keep track. Um, but it was actually episode 20, and this is episode 21. So we have uh, we've hit another milestone. So we're marching uh, marching onward with this, um, which is a which is a cool thing. Um, we increasingly. Um, you know, I don't know who specifically is listening to this, but I do, I do have some visibility into, um, uh, into where you're from. And so we've, uh, we've had a few people from Utah. We have some people from Montana now listening to this. There are some people from Oregon and, um, um, of course the, uh, the, the biggest chunk of people are here in Tennessee and they're probably my friends, um, so thank you for that. We've got some uh, people in Alabama, uh, and there's some friends down there too, I know. Um, some people in Texas, um, where I used to live. Um, but we've, uh, there's, there's people we're hitting, we haven't hit all 50 states yet, but, uh, but we're, uh, we're growing. We got, um, we got more listeners, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. So uh, I'm going to say on the front end, I'll say it again in the, at the end, but you know, if, you, if you enjoy this, please share this. Um, I'm not, I'm not trying to really, I'm not trying to make money with this. Uh, I could use some money, but I'm not trying to, not trying to make any money with this. I'm just, I'm doing this cause I think it's helpful. And, um, I think, uh, I've got some things to say that, that I don't hear a lot of other people saying. So I, I hope, I hope this is helpful. And if it is, please share it, um, with people, um, help get the word out and, um, and let some more people know. Um, about what we're doing here. Um, so today, I want to try to give uh, give you a picture of what going to the church going to church in the first century was like, um, what it looked like, what it felt like, how it embodied everything we've been talking about. Um, it, this is a hard challenge um, because it, most of the things that are written out there, um, are descriptive and um, tend to be kind of in the realm of scholarly and um, they they often they often don't you know you can you can read descriptions of something but that doesn't tell you how it feels to be a part of it right that's a different thing and that's something a lot of writers haven't haven't translated for us 
there is a there is a book, and I'm going to share it at the end of the at the end of the uh, podcast. And it's become kind of my go to book to sort of uh, give to people um, to ha- sort of help them get a, f- a feel for what this is like. And I'll talk more about that later. But um, we have to start this discussion with a word or two about the phrase "going to church" and a couple of the other phrases that we use to talk about gathering together with Christians, like attending church or uh, even referring to our gatherings as services, I find those terms really inadequate and unhelpful because talking about church that way really fails to capture the intent of Christian assemblies and what I think what I think the earliest Christians experienced when they met. Um, I don't think it, nobody in the first century, um, or second or third century would would talk about attending services um, or, um, or or going to church. They just wouldn't. That's just not the way they talked about it um, because that's not what the that's not what was conveyed in the experience. Okay, um, so ideas of attendance and ceremony and even assembly uh, just don't really capture, at least for me the spirit and purpose of early Christian gatherings. Early Christian gather, gatherings were were humble gatherings that that edified Christians. And we talked about that word edified last week. Uh, they were small in scale. They were domestic in setting. They were rhetorically unpolished, um, ritually unimpressive, and mostly, mostly restricted to Christians. Um, their aim... Uh, they were not trying to impress the masses, but really rather to just equip the Christians as individuals and communities to live their faith attractively. And we talked about that last week. So to that end, the, the gatherings fed them with some spiritual food from the Word, reminded them of their Lord and King and the Lord's Supper. And those were the things they needed to sustain them as they followed Jesus in, in what then was a very dangerous world. Um, I think we're moving toward Christianity becoming more dangerous here in the West. Uh, where we see that I, I saw saw a video this week of a of a of a church up in New York, and a bunch of protesters were trying to force their way into the church and being just really hostile, and uh, they even kind of roughed some of the Christians up just a little bit um, when they were just trying to gather for their for their 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 meetings, right there. Anyway, I, I think we're we're moving that way in society. It scares me a little bit. I I, I don't want to see that, um, but I think that's the reality. Reality. So so I want to I want to talk um, about uh, churches in the first century, and I want to kind of give you some some big picture ideas of um, how they functioned and and some of the sociological forces that that kind of were in play then. So. A big piece in understanding all this is the fact that the early church didn't meet in dedicated church buildings. Um, the first, uh, well, for the first 300 years, they met in homes. Now, I'm aware of the fact that um, there was a, um, there's an archaeological site in, in a place called Dura Europus um, where they have documented a, a house that at some point was actually um, it ceased to function as a house and was exclusively a meeting place for Christians. Um, and this was this was 
in the, gosh, I can't remember now. I want to say it was in the 250s AD, roughly, somewhere in there. Um, but I'm doing this from memory, so don't hold me to that. Um, you know, probably what happened is the, 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 the church that met in this home just grew and grew and grew, and they finally decided that the person that owned the house had had enough wealth to have another house, and so they just converted this house into an, an exclusively Christian meeting place. And that was that's the first dedicated church building that we know. But it was a house, right? It wasn't this big monstrosity of a of a of an architectural wonder. It was a house that was used exclusively past a certain point for um, for uh, religious church gatherings, right? Um, but for the 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 for the vast uh, and, and we'll talk next week about. Church building is really catching on in the in the early fourth century. Uh, we'll talk about that. But for the first three hundred years, Christians met in homes, and so um, things would have all been much more informal. Let me let me tell you a quick story. Um, a number of years ago, we were living in Memphis, and we were part of a church there, and the church decided to have uh, small groups. And so we were we were going to be part of a small group. It was one of the first small groups that I was ever part of in a, in a church. And um, the our small group decided that we would take the Lord's Supper together when we when we met. We met on Sunday evening, and uh, so we had all gone to big assembly and on Sunday morning, and we were part of a small group that started meeting on Sunday night. And we decided that we would take the Lord's Supper together again. On uh, all together in the in the little home that we were meeting in, uh, in our small group on Sunday night, we thought that would bring some cohesion uh, to us. What was really interesting to me was, and I, and I I didn't really process this until after it happened, but um, you know if you've been in a big church and you've and you've celebrated the Lord's Supper, it's always a very uh, somber, uh, ceremonious kind of thing. Everybody gets quiet and a a group of usually men get up and and pass the pass the trays around and and there's all that kind of thing. It was really interesting in this little in this little group, you know. And I'm gonna I'm gonna stray into a. We're not gonna have a discussion about women's roles here, but you know, for years that that was a that was a big thing, right? The men did the stuff, right? Um, and a lot of places still do. And I'm not saying pro or con on any of that right now, but. Um, it was interesting in this in this little home when we did the Lord's Supper, when we got ready for that, it was the most natural thing in the world. Like nobody nobody talked about this ahead of time. Nobody planned it out. But a couple of the women went up, went out went out in the kitchen, grabbed the grabbed the little trays with the bread and the juice, brought it back, and just started handing out to everybody. And this was a church where that that at that time believed in kind of the men would take the lead in all that stuff, right? But in a home, the women got up and did it, and nobody said a thing about it. And it was very informal and very sweet and very wonderful. And it was only afterwards that we were talking about this and, and, and we realized, hey, <laughs> the women served the Lord's Supper. And my point in, in telling you that is that in a home, it just seemed like, like, I think some of the stuff, I'm getting ahead of myself, I'm getting to some stuff I'm going to talk about at the end. Sometimes things happen in a home that, that 
are just natural and easy and simple. But if you tried to do them in a big building, uh, there'd be fights breaking out about it, right? Um, things are different in a home. Things are more relaxed. Things are more informal, uh, much more family-like, much more relational. And that's, that's the way some of this stuff was in the first century. These people knew each other. When, you're, when you meet together a small group in a home, you know each other, really know each other. You know each other's challenges and struggles, joys and triumphs. So we see this in the New Testament all over the place, um, this meeting in houses. I'm sorry if I'm sniffing a little bit. I've got allergy problems. Um, my allergies don't hit me until the 4th of July. <laughs> From the 4th of July on, I suffer. Um, before the 4th of July, uh, I'm fine. So I'm, uh, we, we've passed the 4th, so I'm starting to suffer now. So anyway, so um, in the New Testament, we see followers of Jesus um, continuing in uh, Jewish temple piety and table fellowship from house to house, it says. We see that in Acts 2.46. We see that in Acts 5.42. Um, there are numerous references in the book of Acts and even in 1 Corinthians uh, to uh, household conversions, uh, Acts 16.15, Acts 16.34, Acts 18.18, 18. 1 Corinthians 1.16, 1 Corinthians 16.15. I'm just going to rattle off these, these scriptures to you. You can look them up on your own. Um, Paul, in a lot of his letters, will, will, will say uh, he will send greetings to the church in so-and-so's house, right? And he'll do that several times. He'll do that in uh, 1 Corinthians 16.19, Romans 16.5, uh, Philemon 2, uh, Colossians 4.15, so it's just clear in the New Testament that existing household households served as the nucleus, <clears throat> excuse me, of Christian organization in the first century. Now, when we say that, we kind of have to understand a little bit about what what a typical household looked like in early Christianity in the Roman Empire, because there were some differences between households and how they functioned then. And households today, so it, it, it's easy to read uh, those scriptures and, and realize the church men in houses and think, "Well, we just do it in our houses; everything's going to be just the same." Not exactly. There were some differences. Okay, so I want to I want to talk about some of those for a minute. But I need a sip of coffee first. Ah, it's still hot. That's good. Uh, so the Greek word for house or household. Uh, is the word oikos, okay? I think we mentioned this last week. Um, the, the, the oikos in the Roman Empire, uh, the Greco-Roman world, um, involved um, a great deal. It, it, they, were, they were networks of social interaction. Um, the, the word can mean a family, a single family, right? But it doesn't necessarily just mean a blood family. It means a household family. And that's an important distinction. So, in the in the in the first century, and this would have been true in the second and third century too. But I'm just gonna I'm just gonna for ease talk about the first century. If you were the head of the household, your household would include everyone who is dependent upon you, either permanently or temporarily. 
Um, so in the average Greco-Roman household, there's there's all kinds of levels of social interaction, some of them external, but most of them internal. Um, so the household was a place where lots of different kinds of people would come together. Um, business associates, um, hired hands, um, guilds or associations of various kinds that you happen to be part of, and so on. It really was kind of the melting pot place in society, right? Um, so the, the the idea of household in the Greco-Roman world meant this complex web of relationships. It did not mean what we in 21st century America typically mean when we think of the idea of household as a single family dwelling where um, we're kind of a refuge from the world, right? And it's just us. It was much more fluid than that, okay? So these kinds of, of house church networks, because they're the way they are in the first century, um, they go. this goes a long way toward explaining the, the impact that Christianity has, especially in the first century, because you've got all these different layers of society here. You've got these levels of responsibility and duty. You've got the... the the, the patron relationship that is alive and well there. But you have to understand these are emotional relationships too. These are real relationships. These are not just cold associations. These are relationships in a household. They're, they're, they're real relationships, okay? So, so Christianity comes along and Christians are just kind of superimposed onto these existing networks of relationships. But again, they're, they're a bit, these are a bit different social units than what we tend to experience today in our homes. Um, in, in contemporary America, the average middle-class home is basically functioning as a sanctuary away from society. It is not the nexus of those things, okay? But there's another piece to all this. Hospitality. Hospitality was a was a huge part of the household. So people traveled around a lot in the first century, and they seem not to have enjoyed staying at inns. There were inns. Um, Jews didn't enjoy staying at inns, probably because the inns were a lot of times run by Gentiles. Uh, Roman upper class people uh, also didn't enjoy staying at inns because they tended to be kind of seedy places, right? You've you've been to places like that, so have I. So where do you stay? when you're traveling around, if you don't want to stay at the inns. Well, people offered private hospitality, and that hospitality became part of the fabric of society. Um, in the Jewish world, that kind of hospitality was just part of their culture, and we see that all over the Bible. Just read through the Bible, and you see all kinds of instances where people are offering lodging to people who are just traveling through and arrive in their, in their little town. So you've got households that are... A, a, a melting pot of business and commerce and hospitality and family. And you've got people from every social and economic strata who are a part of that. And that the, the houses themselves were obviously owned by people in the upper class. But today, all of that has become institutionalized. You've got the motel down there on the corner. You've got the restaurant down the street. Uh, the state has taken over the orphanages, and the church is really just separate from all of that most of the time. Uh, 
Christine Pohl, uh, in her book, Making Room, Recovering Hospitality as a Christian Tradition, she says that the middle and upper class people are, are not where this can best happen today because their houses tend to be fortresses. Um, the working class people, she says, in contrast, have, have homes that are more open, uh, more transparent, and have far less to lose. And so um, working class homes function more like that today. Um, but we can learn, right? Even those of us who are middle class or, or, or people that, that are, would be considered upper class, we can learn to be more hospitable and open our homes up a bit more. Um, so that, that book by Christine Paul, I'm going to have a link to that in the show notes. But I've got another uh, book. While we're on the topic of hospitality, I'll recommend another book uh, to you. I have not personally read this myself, but I have a number of, of trusted friends who have read it and love it and say it really opened their eyes to some things. Um, so based on their recommendations, I feel pretty comfortable endorsing that. Uh, the book is by a woman named uh, Rosaria Butterfield, and it is called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Practicing Rad- Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our pro- Post-Christian World. So my understanding, like I said, I haven't read the book, but but I've, I've read the blurbs on the back of the book, and my understanding is um, Rosaria Butterfield... Um, was a um, what, what I think some would call a, a militant lesbian, and she moved into this into this house in this neighborhood, and she was not a Christian, and she was, you know, everything you think of when you think of the term militant homosexual or militant lesbian. Um, right next door to her lived this um, this older couple. Uh, I think, if I remember right, he was a retired Presbyterian minister. And they just got to know her as neighbors, talking over the fence. They were they were always polite. They were always kind to her. Um, they got to know her. They started having her in their house for dinner. And they never, not once, tried to convert her. They just loved her. And over time, and I don't know how much time, but over time, um, she just started talking to them about her life and about who she was and everything and started asking them questions. And she was the initiator of all this. And their love for her unsettled her, took her off off guard. Well, over, over a great deal of time, she eventually became a Christian. And um, not not because there was this really persuasive, you know, in-your-face kind of people, but because there was just some people that loved her as she was. And she then, when she became a Christian, she started doing the same kind of thing, just opening up her home to everybody to the point that she was giving people house keys to her house that, you know, people could just come and go. Um, so, so she wrote this book. The gospel comes with a house key, um, practicing radically ordinary hospitality in our post-Christian world. There's something attractive about that, okay? Um, so, so I recommend those two books to you. Um, so w- within these simple homes, 
uh, in the first century, you have solidarity, you have loyalty, you have relationships that are essential for the transmission of the gospel. Okay, so there's the background, or at least a piece of it. There's there's so much more. You want you want to get into a, a deep dive into all the the socio political forces that that were involved in society in the in the first century. It, it is a deep dive. There's a there's a lot of um, things to study when you start studying early Christianity. But that would be a full blown college course, and I'm, I have no intention of trying to teach that here in a podcast. So, um, But here's the thing about this that gets right to the core, I think, of what I'm trying to make this podcast be about. If you talk for very long about intimacy with God and among His people, the conversation almost always turns to how is this lived uh how is this lived out in church life? Most people seem to recognize that the means by which we often do church doesn't always help foster that relationship, either with God or with each other, and often provides significant distractions to it. And the point of all this for me is that I think the kind of dynamic that existed in the healthiest churches of the first 300 years of Christianity is something very few of us experience today in our typical institutional churches. Um, The depth of relational intimacy that exists in a community of people devoted to Jesus is something that I think we'd admit we all want, but few of us ever really find. I want to help us find that. And the first step toward real change, of course, is knowing what you ought to expect. So one way that I like to talk about all this is that um, if you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, uh, you'll notice that Jesus, and, and I'm, I'm categorizing this, and, and anytime you try to categorize something, um, there's limits, right? So I, I realize I realize that this is, this is a, a bit artificial, but I'm going to do it anyway. But you'll notice basically five kinds of interaction with people that seem to be characteristic of Jesus. Okay, now again, I'm breaking this up into five. You're going to read the New Testament. You're going to see, well, I see six, or I see eight, or I. You can you can do this too much, and I'm trying not to do that. But but I want to make a point out of all this. So, um, so basically, five kinds of interaction with people that seem to be characteristic of Jesus. Uh, the first is what we're going to call metro community, and, and we're just making these words up, right? And that would be what you might think of as the crowd, which is basically too many people to know. So the feeding of the 5,000 comes to mind here. Jesus is dealing with loads and loads and loads of people, um, too many people to know, right? The strengths in a, in a group of that size or that it involves everyone, it is expanding, it includes maximum diversity. The limits to a group that size is that you tend to lose the personal. Uh, everyone tends to be just a bit anonymous, okay? The second group is what we're going to call macro community. And this is probably somewhere, and this is all arbitrary too, but somewhere between 70 and 120 people, okay? This is basically as many people as you can know. Okay, um, 
And the strengths of this size group is that you have some uh, level of shared resources. Uh, there's still a good degree of diversity, but, but growth is a bit limited because you're kind of at the edge of capacity. To go beyond that requires going out into some big open field in the first century, or in our day, requires a several million, several million dollar budget to build some big building, right? The next stage is, is what I'm going to call meso community, which is roughly, roughly four to 20 people, okay? Basically an extended family. Uh, the amount of people you'd have at a family reunion, for instance. Uh, this would have been probably the typical house church in early Christianity. And the strengths here are that you have deeper personal relationships, you have the ability to spend significant time with everyone, and you've got a high degree of cohesiveness. The limits here are that it can be a little bit isolated, and you may have a lack of resources. So you may not be able to try, you probably shouldn't try to do everything, right? Because you can't be or do everything. The next level down is micro-community, and this is three or four people, uh, a band of brothers or a band of sisters. Uh, if you were in, a, in the military, this would be your fire team, okay? Um, the strength here is that there's there's an even greater level of safety and intimacy and, and, and some level of accountability, um, even if it's self-imposed. Um, you've got maximum influence, um, mentoring going on, um, the limits here is that there is a danger of, of crossing some boundaries. It can be a bit exclusive, too. And then finally, you have... Uh, oh, forgot to turn the phone off. There we go. There we go. Okay. We'll see if we can do that again. All right. <laughs> So finally, you've got mono community, and mono community is one on one. This is a, this is a soul friend, okay? This is somebody the the person in uh, the, the the Christian in this world who you are the closest to, right? Who you spend the most time with, your soul friend. Um, the strengths here are maximum levels of safety and transparency. Uh, transparency, you're being totally real with each other. And, and deep fulfillment in this relationship. The limits here are that you, you can become overly reliant on this one other person, and they can replace God in your life. Uh, there's also a potential for codependency, and it's very, very exclusive. Not that it's bad, but there, there it is. Now, there's those five things, and you can push and pull on those and say there should be more or less, or you could say those are artificial distinctions, whatever. But play along with me here. So a really interesting question here is, if you could only have three of those five, which would you choose? So think about that. If you could only have three of those five, which would you choose? A friend of mine who uh, works, he, he teaches in a university, he uh, teaches missions and um, things surrounding missions. He has been asking this this question to Christians for over twenty years now. And you know what's interesting? People always choose the last three 
the bottom three as the most critical parts of life in the kingdom. And yet, what types of community do we typically spend the most time and attention and energy on in our churches? Typically the first two. So what would a church model look like that intentionally focused the majority of attention on the bottom three types of community? So that brings up the subject of church models. So if you, if you look deeply around North America today, you will, uh, you will notice about five different models of church. It sounds like everything is grouping of five today, doesn't it? Um, but you'll, you'll notice about five different models of church. And again, this is something you could, you could push and pull on this, and you could split some of these out, um, but there it is. Um, 50 years ago, if you did this, you'd probably only seen one. But today, there are about five different models of church, at least in North America or the United States. Um, there's your traditional churches, um, sometimes called legacy churches, sometimes called institutional churches. Um, this type of church is probably what most of us are familiar with. It's probably what we grew up on if we grew up going to church. Uh, and it focus, focuses, these, these kinds of churches uh, focus on addressing needs through programs and staff and events, okay? Um, number two um, are cell churches. Um, cell churches originated with a guy named Paul Yonggi Cho in Korea. Uh, cell churches are, are large churches, sometimes huge large churches. They do not meet in a building uh, because you could not have a building big enough for 20,000 people. Now you're talking about a stadium, so they, they tend not to do this. Um, it is a church comprised of many, many, many cells. And each cell has roughly 6 to 20 people. And almost all of the real ministry and engagement happens through these cells. Okay. Um, number three, you have missional or sometimes called emergent churches. And there's a little bit of a distinction there. So you could separate these out. Um but I'm lumping them, okay? So the dis distinction between missional and emergent churches is this. Missional churches uh, tend to try to reform attitudes and ideas and focus about who we are and how we can better connect with outsiders, but, but leave the structure pretty much unchanged. So, so you might go into a traditional church and you say, we want to become missional. So we're going to try to reform our attitudes and our ideas and our focus uh, about who we are and how we can better connect with outsiders, but we're gonna we're gonna leave our structure virtually unchanged. Okay, emergent churches say we're gonna completely change our structure in order to accomplish the, the, that those changes in in focus and ideas and attitudes. Okay, then number four, you've got um, organic churches or simple churches or house churches. They're, People will call them by different names. Interestingly, um, and here's some data on this, way back in 2006, okay, so a long time ago now, right, George Barna reported, this was in 2006, reported way back then that in a typical week, roughly 20 million adults attend a house church gathering in the United States. Over the course of a typical month, that number doubles to about 43 million adults. 
That number basically put house churches in the United States as a whole right about halfway between the Catholic Church, which is the largest denomination in the U.S., and the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the second largest denomination in the U.S. So the number of people meeting in house churches really would be the second largest denomination, even though they're not a denomination, right? And that was way back in 2006. If you want some more current data, just in the last three years, um, according to Barna, one in three churched adults, that's 34% of churched adults, say that they have attended a church gathering in someone's home. So clearly house churches are a growing phenomenon in the U.S., but that growth is not happening everywhere. Um, interestingly, it is happening uh, slower in the southeast, in the kind of in the buckle of the Bible Belt. You tend not to see that as much. Um, but in the northeast, in the northwest, really in the northwest, uh, in all the other parts of the country, it's it's really taken off. It's it's happening in the south too, but slower. Okay. Um, so then, so that was number four. Number five is um, what you might call residential communities, or some people call it a, a new monasticism. And I'm not going to talk about that because it's I I think it's a little bit of a fringe movement. Um, Shane Claiborne, if you know who he is, he would be sort of a modern representative of of that kind of a kind of a movement. Now, let me be really clear here. I want to be really really crystal clear about this. Okay, so pay attention. I believe God can and does work in every single one of those. Okay, I would never, ever, ever want anyone to hear me talk and think that I'm saying God is in this kind of gathering and not in that kind of gathering. That's, that is not at all what I want to say. There are some wonderful kingdom activities going on in every single one of these. Okay, and I've seen it in every single one of these. So, so it's just not the case that God is in this kind of kind of gathering and not another. God works everywhere. Um, you're not going to keep God out of anything. Okay. Now, so I want to be real clear about that. Okay, you heard me say that, right? Having said that, I'm going to tell you that I am a fan of house churches. If you didn't already gather that, I think house churches offer a lot in terms of engagement with people and intimacy and family. And it is a great way to bring people into Christianity in a very natural, very easy, very friendly way. And this is, a, this is an aside, okay? I think there are some practical reasons why house churches are going to become larger and la- a larger and larger reality in the U.S. For one thing, we're seeing an increasingly unfavorable stance toward churches by government, and I think I think a lot of churches. I think churches are soon, soon. I don't know how soon soon is going to be, but I think at some point churches are going to lose their tax exempt status. And according to everything that I'm reading and trying to keep my finger on the pulse of this, when that when churches lose their tax exempt status, there are a lot of churches that are just going to close their doors because financially their budgets are strained. Now, they have to start paying taxes. Um, it's going to close their doors. Um, so, what are we going to do then? 
house churches are going to be a reality. Also, I think there are a whole host of typical church problems um, that just go away if you're meeting in a home. For one, church security. You know, we've had church shootings everywhere. Um, not everywhere, but we've had a number of them, right? And so churches are starting to to put in place security protocols and security teams and and armed people, um, which I support all of that. Um, that kind of stuff just isn't going to happen in a home. It's just not. You got a group of Christians meeting in somebody's home in a neighborhood. Nobody's even going to know where they're at, right? So, and and that's just one. That's just one problem. There's a whole host of other church problems, um, issues that just go away if the church is meeting in a home in homes again, right? So that's all that. That's a little aside, okay. And I, I got distracted for a minute, but beyond that. Beyond all that, why I'm, I'm kind of a fan of house churches. Discipleship has always happened through social networks. Like, we know that, right? When people have stronger relationships with, with members than non-members, um, change happens. When uh, accepting the ideology of a, of a religious group usually simply means coming to accept the ideologies of your friends who are part of those, Right? So the question becomes, how does one become a friend to, to particular people? Well, you do that the way friends always work. You, you hang out together. You do things together. You go to football games together. You go fishing together. You, you go shopping together. Um, um, you, you, have, you have people in your home and you, and you eat meals together and you, and you play cards together or whatever you do. You go to movies together. And you let them experience something of what we've got to offer. Love and safety and family and truth. And I just think that can happen most naturally and most easily in a house church setting. And that is exactly what people would have experienced in the churches of the first 300 years of Christianity. But if you've never experienced that, it's really kind of hard to describe what that looks like. That's why I am such a big believer in the story. Uh, I think stories help you imagine things that you wouldn't be able to imagine otherwise. Um, that's why novels are so cool. That's why I love biographies uh, of people. If I want to, if I want to really understand history, I pick a biography of somebody that lived during a particular time in history because in looking at their life and getting to learn how they lived in that time, I learned something about the history of, the, of that time period. It's, I connect with stories. Um, stories give you a, a feel for things that are hard to describe. So one of the best little resources I can recommend to really get a, a feel for what church life looked like or church gatherings looked like in the first century is a little bitty book called Going to Church in the First Century. <laughs> it's written by a guy named Robert Banks, uh, who is a biblical scholar and early church historian from Australia. Um, he has taught at Fuller Seminary. He has taught at Macquarie University in Australia. He has taught in Hong Kong. He's taught all over. Um, 
And I will have a link for it in today's show notes. But it's but it is a beautiful little neat book. It's only about 40 pages long. It's really, really easy to read. And it's a story. It's not a textbook. It, it is a story basically about how a Roman non-Christian gets invited to a meal in the in the home of Priscilla and Aquila, who we know from the Bible, right? Uh, they're in Rome and they're having a, a, a you know a regular church gathering, and they invite this they invite, somebody knows this Roman guy and invites him to this, and he comes, and it's it's really told from his vantage point about what it is, what it's like as a non-Christian to come into you know with all the baggage of the Roman religions in your head. What's it like to come into this simple, humble home and have a meal together with all these different people and who are who are Christians and who love each other and who are, like it is a beautiful little story, okay? So I highly recommend it. It's it's very well researched. Um, Robert Banks uh, wrote a much larger book um, called um, Paul's Idea of Community, Spirit and Culture in Early House Churches. And he realized, like, it's very robust. It's a, I've got a copy of it here, and I'm reading it because um, I, I never read the big book. I, I've read the little book a hundred times and some other stuff, but I haven't read this, so I'm reading it. Um, but what he found was that he wrote this big book, and it was still hard for people to grasp what this actually looked like, what it actually felt like. So he went back and wrote, going to the church in, in the first century, as a way of sort of making all that really accessible in story form, um, and it's a neat it's a neat little book. Um, it's so useful to me. I generally try to keep a few of these on hand, and and when I have conversations with people about wondering about what church was like in the first century, I'll just give them a copy of it. Um, so I highly recommend it. It's cheap. I think it's like seven dollars on Amazon. And I just haven't found anything better that conveys what an early church gathering probably felt like, okay? So for me, there are three non-negotiables for what church has to look like to embody everything that I think God wants to be embodied, okay? And everything that we've been talking about in this podcast, there's there's three non-negotiables. First, Jesus Christ is the head. We, we must have submission to Jesus as the head, individually and collectively. That involves listening to Jesus in Scripture. That's primary. But also through learning to listen to the Father and listen to Jesus speak to you personally. We've, we've talked about that in the past too. Okay. My second non-negotiable is community as family. And what I mean by that is Christians really and authentically engaged in each other's lives as brothers and sisters, as valued co-travelers on this same journey, okay? We've got to have better relationships with one another than we sometimes have. And then my third non-negotiable is every member empowered for ministry um, and giving that they know what their gifts are, they know how God has has wired them. Um, they know what their strengths are. They know how they can contribute, and they are given permission to do that and opportunity to exercise those gifts. Um, it's a decidedly unhealthy church uh, 
when ministry is only done by professionals and everyone else are just spectators. That is not, that is not the church that Jesus came to build. The church is only healthy and what God wants her to be when every Christian is using their gifts for the good of the kingdom. Now, those three things might be embodied really, really well in a number of church models. But I think they are easier to embody well in smaller, more intimate gatherings like house churches. And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again next week. As always, we'd appreciate it if you tell others about the podcast. Uh, If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. But please share, share with other people. Um, Visit us, uh, please, on our Facebook page for the Jesus Society podcast. Um, And feel free to suggest topics uh, for episodes, ask questions, and share your own story about how the Father is loving you and transforming you. Uh, Also check out our website, thejesussociety.com. Thanks for listening. And remember, you are greatly loved.